0: Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here on this Friday, just a few weeks before the presidential election. The infant mortality rate in the city of Detroit rivals that of some third world countries. Some countries in the developing world look like what we deal with here in the city of Detroit. High childhood asthma rates here can be correlated with pollution in certain parts of the city, and residents face an uphill battle. with things like obesity, heart disease, and an often frustrating healthcare system. Any major city faces a lot of issues when it comes to public health, but there are moments when it appears there is even more work to be done to make life fair and good for everyone today we wanted to talk to the man in charge of making headway on those issues dr abdul el-sayed is a medical doctor by training but has dedicated his career to the intersection of medicine policy and social justice and he joins me now to talk about his work here in the city of detroit and then i want to talk to him about his personal story which is also Really interesting. Dr. El-Sayed, thank you for being here on Detroit Today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Uh, I should say welcome back. We've had you on the show before. Uh, but but let's talk uh, – I, I, you and I have talked privately at least a lot about the specific health challenges that we fi- face here in the city of Detroit and the specific health policy challenges we face here. In the in the opener there, I talked about the the, the infinite mortality rate being similar here to, to places in the developing world. Uh, uh, that seems to me to be ground zero. Uh, and I know that you are really engaged. You have been really engaged since you've been here in trying to think about new or different ways to attack these problems. I saw a commercial recently. Uh, that I know you had some responsibility for you must have because it was uh, it had a a, a number of African American mothers and mothers to be talking about the importance of prenatal care the importance of going to see a doctor when you're going to have a baby because that is one of the ways to to help lower the incidences of infant mortality that we have I can't remember in Detroit in the 30-some years that I've lived here off and on over my lifetime, ever really seeing that kind of effort on television, which is where it is most likely to reach the most people.
1: There's a lot of effort that's going uh, into this issue. In particular, um, it it has been uh, one of the mayor's big foci. Uh, And when I started the position, he said, look, I've I've got really two foci for you that I really want us to tackle. Uh, And those are Uh, our astounding infant mortality rate, uh, which is a really complex problem. As you said, it's ground zero. And when you think about the public health of a community, infant mortality really is that one metric. If you had any metric to look at, it would be that one. Because if a society can do the work uh, and a community can do the work of taking uh, a a, a woman from early conception all the way to the first year, there's a lot that goes into that. And if you can do that, you generally can do most of the other things. Um, And so it tells you a lot about public health status. So that's a big focus for us. And then the other one is teen and unplanned pregnancy. Um, about one in six infants born in the city of Detroit is going to be born to a woman who's under the age of 19. <clears throat> and the implications of that in terms of both uh, the socioeconomic outcomes for that child, that child who's given birth, um, and then uh, the health outcomes for the child who was given birth to uh, are, are astounding. And so all of this really wraps around a central set of questions that we're, we're thinking about across the city, uh, which is how do you interrupt Intergenerational poverty in our city. How do you give the next generation access to the kinds of goods and services and life trajectories uh, that that we all want for our children in ways that oftentimes, unfortunately, their parents' generation weren't able to have? Yeah. And so this is this is where it comes to head for us on on this infant mortality question. Uh, what are the things we need to do? Prenatal care being part of it, um, but then also thinking about access to goods and services um, that people just generally need in their lives that also tend yeah. uh, to do the work of saving babies And
0: this is the the baby basket this is where the baby basket idea comes from talk about what that is and, and how you how, how that's another tool to help raise, uh, lower that, that rate.
1: Right. So we're really excited about, about this potential project. Um, we're working with the United way of Southeast Michigan to really think about how we would roll that out. Now, where that comes from is, um, about 21% of babies who die before the age of one in our city die in unsafe sleep situations. What does that mean? That means that baby fell asleep next to mom or dad, mom or dad, uh, obviously didn't mean to, but they're sleeping. They're probably tired because they have a less than one-year-old in their house, uh, rolled over. And unfortunately, that baby is not in the capacity to say, hey, hey, you're on top of me. Um, and unfortunately, baby suffocates and dies. Um, and so we're thinking about ways to interrupt that challenge. Now, Finland has the lowest infant mortality rate in the country, Now, excuse me, in the world. And when you think about where infant Finland's infant mortality rate is uh, and compare that to where we are today, our infant mortality rate in Detroit is what Finland's was in 1968, and so we can borrow from the Finnish example and ask ourselves, what are they doing well that what we could they potentially do well? right, right? Exactly. And one of the things that, that that happens in Finland, as a matter of course, is that every baby born in Finland is given a baby box, which is literally a, a mid-sized cardboard box, kind of like something you might use when you're moving. That's got a mattress in the bottom of it. What does that do? Well, it gives the baby opportunity to to have safe sleep. Um, a baby should always sleep alone on its back in a crib or a bassinet or a baby box. Um, without any smoke in the air. right? And so this gets you most of the way there. Why? It creates a norm, a cultural norm, about where a baby ought to sleep that's not in the couch, that's not on the floor, that's not in the bed with mom and dad. It's in this baby box. And it lasts for zero to six months. And so they've virtually eliminated... Uh, Sleep-associated death using this technology, and you know when I say technology and a cardboard box, <laughs> you don't really think of those things as right. the same thing. Um, but technologies are really anything that help us to solve a problem that we continue to face. Yeah. And uh, so this is a thought technology in and in a, in a infant mortality technology that we hope to be able to adopt in the city. Um, and so we're thinking about how do you roll something out like this. Now, uh, obviously, um, we recommend that people sleep uh, that that pe- people have their baby sleep in a crib uh, or um, in a pack and play or in a bassinet. But oftentimes we know that uh, there are many caretakers to a baby. And so uh, when the baby's not at home, maybe the baby's at grandma's house and grandma doesn't have a crib, this is a great al- alternative for that. Or if you're cooking and the crib is in the bedroom and you, know, you just say, maybe I'll just leave the, the baby on the floor here or leave the baby on the couch, this is, again, a great alternative mechanism. And so we're thinking about how do we adopt that in the city to try and tackle that 21% of, of babies who, uh, who die having uh, died in an unsafe sleep situation. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on
0: 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He's the Executive Director and Health Officer at the Detroit Health Department. Uh, We are talking about health conditions here in the city of Detroit, how desperate they are for many people. The things that uh, Dr. El-Sayed is doing as the the, the the chief health officer here in Detroit to try to turn some of those trend lines in different uh, directions. Uh, if you have a comment or a question for Dr. El-Sayed, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. What do you notice about health conditions here in the city of Detroit, infant mortality asthma rates the, the the level of pollution that people live with here how does that affect public health uh, give us a call again 313-577-1019 is the number dr elsa i i want to ask you a more philosophical question i guess um, when we're talking about health conditions in the city of detroit and the 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 various challenges the various health challenges that we have often we're we're talking about things that that are a function of poverty in some way, that that poverty helps drive those factors or helps prevent us from fighting those factors in the most effective way. And so I, I guess the, the the question I have for you is, should we be focusing on fighting poverty, which, of course, is a really complicated idea and something that we've talked about in this country since the, the, probably the, the beginning, really, uh, as opposed to 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 just focusing on health. I mean, in other words, are we treating the symptoms and not focusing
1: on the disease? Is the disease poverty itself? So I'm going to borrow um, from from medical textbooks here to try and answer a question about social pathology. Um, in medicine, you have this concept of a syndemic. And what a syndemic is, is two diseases that drive each other. An example of that is, is heart failure and kidney disease. Um, heart failure drives kidney disease because basically the kidneys get overloaded with blood because the heart can't move it. And at the same time, because you end up having kidney disease, it makes you overall sicker and it leads to worsened heart failure. Um, we are facing in, in our city and in, in really in many urban populations, but in particular, our city a syndemic between poverty and poor health. In one way, poor health drives poverty. When a child cannot see, when a child is is exposed to elevated lead, when a child um, doesn't have a great shot at, at making it to their first birthday and, and all of the consequences that come with that, those drive poverty in ways into the next generation. At the same time, we know very well that poverty drives poor health, lack of access to certain resources. Uh, the, the lack of capacity to, uh, to be able to even go to a doctor, um, given all of the challenges that come with that, whether or not there's a doctor in your neighborhood to begin with, whether or not you can adequately get to the doctor, um, whether or not you can get to a, a grocery store where there's green leafy vegetables on sale, um, uh, the, the challenge with precarious work situations, the challenge with precarious housing, all of these uh, are manifestations of poverty that drive poor health. And so what we really have is, a, is unfortunately, this vicious feedback loop between poverty and poor health. And so at the department, what what we've tried to say is we know that poverty is the sine qua non of solving public health in Detroit. You cannot really think about solving public health without thinking about solving poverty. And at the same time, though, you really can't think about trying to solve poverty without thinking about how health shapes poverty. And so as a health department, we're really focused on those local health challenges that are going to translate poverty from one generation to the next. So we are leveraging health to interrupt intergenerational poverty. How are we doing that? There are a number of outcomes that that we've now focused on that we know will transmit poverty from one generation to the next if we can't do anything about them. One of them is poor infant health, which we talked about. The other one is teen pregnancy. We know that a mother who who becomes pregnant um, before the age of 18, before she graduates from high school, has now dropped her likelihood of finishing high school and having the kind of socioeconomic future that we all want uh, for young women in our society. She's dropped that substantially, um, more than 50% drop. And the likelihood that her infant makes it to the first year, that that likelihood drops a third. So, um, And so teen pregnancy is a big focus for us. Another one is asthma. People don't know this, but asthma is uh, is attributable to 50% of the number of school days missed. So if you can't breathe, you can't learn because you're not in school. And if you can't learn because you're not in school, the likelihood that you're going to make it uh, past high school and into college uh, and into the kind of socioeconomic trajectory we want for you is pretty low. So we want we want to focus on that. Another one, obviously, is lead. Lead has been a big issue in, in, in the state of Michigan. We know what lead does to the brain. Um, and if you're not getting to school with with the kind of brain that can do its best and, and, and manipulate information in the way that we need to, to be able to have that kind of socioeconomic future, um, then, then we're failing you there. Vision, um, uh, a statistic that a lot of folks don't appreciate is that 70% of justice-associated youth, youth who are going to find themselves in the justice system, um, at some point or another, as children, they have underlying vision deficits. And you ask yourself, you know what do kids do when they get bored? well, they they mess around. Um, and that's a that's a normal thing to do. Um but if you can't see what's on the board, your likelihood of messing around in class goes goes way up. And we ask ourselves, why aren't these kids learning? Well, if we're not doing the work of uh, of 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 helping them to see what's on the board and learn what's on the board, then we're failing them there. Um, another outcome here is misnutrition. We have this paradox here. Um oftentimes, when people think about um, how does poverty manifest itself, Uh, with respect to to food, people forget that in urban environments, usually poverty is associated with obesity rather than with malnutrition. So it's not the picture that you see uh, of of a malnourished child somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, in in Ethiopia, for example. Um, What you're seeing is a child who's overweight. But paradoxically, that child may be both obese because they have too much macronutrient on board, too much carbohydrate, too much fat, but still malnourished. Not enough of the things like iron and calcium that most of us can get in our diet from green leafy vegetables because they're just not available. And then lastly, um, we're really focused on the challenge of elderly isolation. Um, What does that mean? We know a number of our seniors uh, cannot be the kind of active members of society that they want to be because of challenges with transportation. And that has huge implications for their healthcare. But also, um, one of the most best things you can do for a young person is give them access to somebody who's interested in their life. And we know we have so many seniors who are really the repository of wisdom in our society um, who want to be active in the lives of young people and simply can't. So we, we're thinking about how to interrupt all of that. All of those are health-focused outcomes, but they allow us then, uh, because of their knock-on effects, to also have a, 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 an influence on the challenge of poverty in our in our city, um, which helps us to think systematically about where we play um, and how it is that we can help to tackle the many challenges that we face uh, in this particular place. Yeah.
0: No, that's a, that's a really great answer to that question, this idea of syndemic, two things that sort of Play off of each other and help cause each other and sustain an illness uh, of, of, of bigger scale. Um, I, I want to change the subject just a little here uh, and talk us a little about your personal story because we're Facebook friends. Uh, I saw I saw recently that that you uh, made a trip to Mecca. Uh, for a hajj which i am fascinated by that concept uh, i am fascinated there's a lot about the the islamic religion that that i'm really just sort of curious about uh, you know i mean i don't know that many people who who practice that religion and so when i find somebody who's who's who who does I'm really curious about uh, the, the the various rituals, just like I'm curious about other religious rituals. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about religion is these practices and traditions. Uh, of course, uh, the, the the Hajj to Mecca is uh, one of the more sort of, I guess, uh, important uh, parts of of Islam. Talk to me about making that trip uh, and and what that was
1: like. It was an incredible experience there were many folks that when when you um, in, in Muslim communities often uh, the term haji is somebody who's done hajj and um, and most often uh, it, it's also synonymous with somebody who's a little bit older. Um, I was really uh, um, blessed and, and honored and lucky to be able to have made it as, as young as I, I have. Um, and I think there are like three big takeaways for me. Um, uh, one of the things that the Hajj does is it unifies three to four million people who come from all walks of life, uh, all literally all over the globe. I prayed from people, prayed beside people um, from literally everywhere, um, and it was just so fascinating to hear their journey. Um, and And it reminds you that you are part of a global community. Uh, we 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 get so focused on the things that we do day to day in our own little community and uh, solving the problems that we solve, but you realize that humanity is at once. Uh, at once so diverse and and also at once so similar. Uh, the challenges that people face, the, um, the 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 struggles that they have, they're they're kind of the same everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that unification is awesome. The other thing that the Hajj does is um, it reminds you that uh, that. I think there's something beautiful regardless of the faith tradition or or, or non-faith tradition um, of being made to feel very, very small. Um, A lot of folks, one of my best friends is uh, a a big outdoors person and uh, having been the uh, the child of immigrants, the outdoors thing was just not something we did. Um, But uh, he would say, you know, I'd go to the Grand Canyon and it was amazing to feel really small. And for me, the Hajj was that experience. You're among three million people. You're indistinguishable from any of them. You're wearing the same white sheets and um, and you're all coming to to do one thing, which is to glorify uh, a, a being that's greater than you. And so that experience of being made to wow. feel small, I think, really reminds you of what's important in the world. Um, and it reminds you that you know you have a certain allotted period of your life to do something meaningful. Um, and after that, you know your, your time is done. And in the grand scheme of things, uh, you were a blip on a radar. Yeah. Um, and so that was a great experience. And then the third one was just um, the, the it, it's a challenging, very, it's a, it's a both emotionally, spiritually, and physically challenging experience. Um, and, and, and you ask yourself, you know, why am I, why am I flying to Saudi Arabia? You're spending? it's a very expensive trip. You sure. spent a lot of money to go fly in Saudi Arabia to wear two white sheets, um, to fulfill a bunch of rituals that, you know, in, in any sort of, uh, instrumental sense, don't really, don't really add up to much. Um, but the point is, is that, uh, is that, there is a sense of again committing yourself um, to doing a certain thing because of tradition and because of togetherness um, and because of a belief in, in in a in a being that's greater than you. Yeah. Um, and so as you're you know doing things, various things like running between two hills or uh, circumambulating the Kaaba or you know stoning a, a wall that symbolizes um, uh, evil and the devil. Um, all of those things sort of remind you that you know in the end. Uh, being able to submit yourself to a higher set of values, um, you know, that that are manifest in this like very specific physical act, um, but even in our daily lives, a higher set of values that matter most—justice, truth, commitment to uh, equity and the people around you—that um, sometimes those are going to ask you to do certain things that seem nonsensical in the moment, um, but in the long term, add up to something that's greater. Um, and so, you know, in the various my day-to-day work, there are moments where you know you're making phone calls. You're like, why am I making this phone call? Does it or why am I <laughs> Know, using my time to do this particular thing um, that seems so divorced from the work, but it is where the work has led me. Um, and to remind yourself to add, to connect that uh, act to what are my bigger values here? What am I serving? And what does that mean to me? Yeah. You know,
0: just what you were talking about reminds me of a question that Catholics often ask themselves in a day, which is, where is God in this day? Where is God in the in the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm saying and thinking? That's almost identical to the the principle you just were talking about. Catholic, Muslim, they sort of come together on yeah, that point. We,
1: we make a lot on uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, we make a lot out of the differences between different faith traditions and and different types of people. And frankly, I think the reality is is that. We all have our own path. And um, you know, you, you can argue uh theological uh specificities in, in this, but there's something about being able to transcend um a struggle and ask yourself what matters most here? Um and what am I serving and uh what does that mean for the world that I have a short time to inhabit? Yeah. Um and so I you know I find I find deep beauty in that and uh, whether it's the Catholic tradition or or the Jewish tradition or um the the, the uh several denominations of Christianity or, or Buddhism, um, that there's beauty in all of that. And I think if we can move forward and accept one another and one another's paths to something that is, is more righteous than we may be right now. Uh, I think there's, there's hope for a world that is, um, that is just a little bit more equitable and just a little bit more, uh, just than the one we live in today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Abdul El Syed,
0: executive director and health officer at the Detroit Health Department. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for um, having Detroit me, today. A We'll have you back, and to catch up with you about these efforts that you're starting to deal with, both health and poverty, and the way they sort of converge here in the city of Detroit. All right, uh, up next, we're gonna talk about teachers protesting the conditions in Detroit public schools. The school year just started. We had a big reset with a new district, but some problems still persist. Stay with us on Detroit Today.